0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. All eyes are on next week's midterm elections and not just to see who wins. A lot of people will also be paying attention to the event itself. Was every vote counted? Were any eligible voters turned away? Were the poll workers kept safe? And does everyone trust the results?
1: Prior to about 2016, 2015, nobody gave a darn. Don't make me wait in the line get my results to me faster, see you again in two years. But really we've learned that there is a large appetite for election information.
0: The ins and outs of election operations have become common subjects of daily news, yet not everyone is satisfied. What do we still not understand about voting and what will it take to convince the skeptics that our elections are trustworthy? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The experts on this panel walk us through how our voting system works, where people's misconceptions might come from, and what could make the process even stronger. Kim Wyman works on election security for the Federal Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Stephen Richer runs elections for Maricopa County, Arizona, one of the biggest districts in the U.S., and Rick Hassan is a law professor specializing in election law and campaign finance. Chris Krebs, the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, moderates the conversation. A quick note about today's recording. This event was held in a tent, and it began raining hard partway through. You may hear a little of that in the episode. Here's Krebs.
2: From your perspective, as, you know, putting your Secretary of State hat back on. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what's, you know, in, in terms of the process of elections, how do they run in, in the United States, um, in, in, in your experience? Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so in the United States, we have about 8,800 jurisdictions that actually conduct the elections across the country. Um, and they are conducted at the local level. And these local local officials could either be elected or appointed. Uh, they vary greatly in terms of the scope of their responsibilities. I mean, there are some counties and city uh, townships that uh, have a couple hundred voters to, you know, LA County with over four million. So it's a very decentralized, diverse group of people that actually conduct our elections. And they all have the same requirements in each of their states, which of course each state constitution and legislature gets to write the election laws and code that they follow. Uh, and so you don't have uh, really a federal organization that truly oversees elections in our country. And, and I think that's one of the strengths of our election system. It also becomes one of our weaknesses because it's very hard to standardize things. Uh, clearly, federal law can do that for federal elections, but uh, we certainly have seen since 2016 the challenges that come with such a decentralized system, but, uh, um, but I still think it's a good one. <laughs> so
2: I think you know that point you make about Uh, it it should not be a federal process that drives elections. And and I think I believed in that pretty heavily in 2020. You know, you don't want an incumbent or a participant in the election to have the ability to put the thumb on the scale. So that's Mm -hmm. important. But can you just dig into really quickly some of the different ways to vote?
3: oh i'm sorry yes uh it's uh, it's again it varies by state uh it really became clear in 2020 uh, when i was uh, secretary of state in washington i had been part of our migration over about 15 years from poll site voting to vote by mail elections completely and many western states adopted that model uh, certainly in 2020 and as you move across the country and move further east uh, mail in voting becomes much more controversial, which has always struck me as odd. And certainly when uh, former President Trump uh, took on vote by mail and said, you know, absolutely the most fraudulent way we could vote is Americans, um, I got a lot of calls, which was really fun. Um, Little PTS there actually as I think back on it but uh, you know it, it, it there are many ways that states and locals do their um, elections from poll site voting on election day we still have a handful of states that you know that's their main model um, you have to have an excuse to get an absentee ballot for example which again I have trouble wrapping my brain around um, but uh, um, so it, 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 each state has its own different model um, and most states are kind of a mix of those two things uh, poll site voting might be um, early voting in a in a uh, vote center and uh, of course mail-in absentee ba- ballots as well and uh, the way that those ballots are cast can also vary widely from uh, we still have it i think a couple states that do pure touch screen voting uh, like louisiana um, you have a myriad of ballot marking devices where you use a device to uh, mark your votes onto a piece of paper, and then, of course, paper ballots that uh, many states use.
2: So, you know, what you highlight there is the, the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, provides the states and the state legislatures the ability to dictate how elections, and every state has kind of decided to do it a little bit better based on the needs of their their constituents, their voters, and you know the in, in some cases, particularly in Oregon and Washington, it's also the geography. Yes. And in the wide open spaces that that leads to uh, you know in-person voting may not be as efficient or give as many opportunities. So, um, Stephen, you uh, you know it's funny, Arizona and Washington. Yes, maybe they're both kind of western states, but they actually look quite similar in terms of. Uh, mail-in voting. So my understanding is Arizona has, what is it, about 80% of votes cast or, or by uh, mail-in ballots? Or, or it was
1: 91% of the votes <laughs> received in the November 2020 election were through the early ballot process, yeah. which means you either took an early ballot and you mailed it back mm-hmm. or you dropped it off at an early voting location.
2: And so you were on the ballot in 2020. Oh, so you were not in office in 2020, but you've been in about there Republican uh, in Maricopa County. And you know, given this, you know, the similarities are worth uh, pointing out, but, but at the same time, Arizona has had a bit of a, a, a departure in the sense of the disinformation that has circulated around the 2020 election. So you have been particularly outspoken in terms of the confidence you have in the processes that you have in the state. Working with your Secretary of State, but you know at the at the Maricopa, you have the the audit or fraud it or whatever you want to call it happen around. So what is what is your perspective on the way you conduct elections in Arizona? And you're out there every day talking to Arizona voters, Maricopa County voters. What are you hearing, and how do you view the threat to democracies? Again, you've been quite outspoken about where we are right now, uh, is American yeah. democracy. Yeah. Uh, it depends how much sleep
1: I've had. So as, as a bit of background, well, Maricopa County is the fourth largest county, and in fact, I think half of this room is in Maricopa, from Maricopa County. Yeah, all right. Uh, fourth largest county, second largest voting jurisdiction in the United States. We have about 2.6 million registered voters, only behind Los Angeles County. So I'm guessing that some people who went to the Supreme Court one, it's because they have so much confidence in the election system already. So the Aspen Institute, check. Just out of curiosity, who here has confidence in election administration defined broadly? Okay, so here we're pretty good. But we're, we're looking for the people who are not raising their hands. And we're looking to speak to those people. Yeah, there's lots of people who, who we're never going to convince. But we're looking for the people who just need more information and that's really what election officials have learned and we're playing catch up because prior to about 2016 2015 nobody gave a darn don't make me wait in the line get my results to me faster see you again in two years but really we've learned that there is a large appetite for election information and so i hear you I see you. I try to speak to those people, as Zoe Chance said in a previous position or a previous panel, Help us out a little bit. You know, tell us what can we do to convince you? Because we really are trying, but we're trying with the methods that we know. We're trying with lots of informational handouts. We're trying with videos, we're trying with tours. We're trying to let you track your ballot all the way through the system. You can get on text message if you're in Maricopa County and you can get text alerts at every stage of the ballot. In Colorado, you can go online and you can see images of all the ballots cast. So we're trying to become more transparent as an industry because we have realized that there is this need and really, I'm not a rabbi, I'm not a priest. So for those of whom it is a matter of faith, you know, I'm sorry, but we're trying to work with the people for who we just need more information. And so information, information and elections departments have become every, but, every bit as much a communications department as they have become administrative departments. So not only is it about building the mousetrap, making sure the mousetrap works, but explaining how the heck the mousetrap works and such that it's not just switching boats back and forth.
2: So that's actually been one of my biggest observations over the last four years is that shift from just getting the thing done, conduct the elections, get through the process, to now the real need for strategic communications, community level engagement. I was always a big advocate for the equivalent of a school health, uh, schoolhouse rocks. Like, how do we vote? How does the system work? You know, we have to get to that level of communication once again to explain the processes to restore confidence. Now, so what we've heard is you know how elections work, uh, some of the things that we've seen on the ground in Maricopa, but, but you know. Rick, step back for a little bit, for us for a little bit. Uh, the last four, five, six years have been remarkable in terms of the narratives that are circulating that are seeking to undermine confidence. So, from your, from your perch, what had those, what's been that main shift in the information landscape around elections? You, you wrote a whole book about this, so, so walk us through this a little sure. bit. Sure. Um, so, when
4: you think about uh, how people get information, and how they know what's the truth. We are just in a fundamentally different environment than we were 20, 30, 40 years ago. So if you wanna know what the truth was, you watched Walter Cronkite on TV or you read your local newspaper. One of the claims I make in my book, Cheap Speech, is that if we had the polarized politics of today, uh, but the technology of the 1950s, we wouldn't have had the events of January 6th. And we wouldn't have 59% of Republican voters believe, believing that an important part of what it means to be a Republican is to believe that the 2020 election was stolen. So when you have this different information environment where the intermediaries who help tell the truth are, are undermined, then it becomes harder for voters to know what's true. And so you think about who Donald Trump attacked from 2015 when he really comes on the political scene through today. He attacked the press as the enemy of the people. The opposition party, his own party, the FBI, the judiciary, right? These are all the institutions that we use to tell the truth. And you know, according to a New York Times count, between November 3rd and November 23rd of 2020, Donald Trump went to Twitter 400 times to make claims about the election being stolen. And he could make those claims directly to millions, tens of millions of people without a filter. Donald Trump in the 1950s would go to the podium at the White House 400 times. It would not be reported in an unmediated way. And so we have to think about what strategies we can use to help voters get reliable information. One of those uh, is to make sure that people can find the actual official information. And so social media companies giving blue check marks to the uh, registrar, that's a that's an important step, but it's going to take a lot more because it's not just nobody knows what's going on and it's hard to know what the truth is. There are actors, both domestic and foreign, who want to interfere with our elections, who want to undermine our democracy for either political purposes or financial purposes, and we have to figure out how to fight back.
2: So one one of the things that I've said before, and I may have stolen this from either Matt Masterson, who worked for me at CISA, and and we all know well, but you know when when you don't understand how anything works, everything looks like a conspiracy theory. Now, yes, that's a little bit, uh, you know, maybe a little aggressive, but nonetheless, it speaks to the need for that strategic communications piece and unpacking the black box that, that sometimes elections and election equipment and machines and the systems around and get accused of being. But let me just do a really quick kind of like lightning round uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna spring this, on, this one on you. Okay. But, um, and what are, what are the effects, right? What are the impacts from, in, in your view, from, uh, from election disinformation? I mean, it could be anything from voter suppression, uh, suppressed turnout, uh, lack of confidence in the process. You know, what are the biggest threats to election outcomes and participation as a result?
3: Uh, people don't believe the results, that's the, and and they lose confidence in it. And I've been in this long enough to have been through two very high-profile, controversial elections: two thousand, the presidential election and the closest governor's race in the country's history. And what I can, the only thing I can tell you about both those elections is that half the country, or half the state, believes that the elected person won, and half the country believes the election was stolen. All these years later. And that's what's at risk, and I think we are in a different era now because of social media and the instantaneous information exchange that uh, that these series now can can grow into uh, things that really make people believe that it was a rigged election, and uh, I I worry about the future. I
2: mean, it, it's kind of that that thought of, and I'm sure Stephen, you've heard this, but it's like, why should I vote? My vote doesn't count. So. Yeah, I, I mean, again, on some of those days, I'm like,
1: okay, don't. Um, you know, I've tried my hardest. But I absolutely don't believe that. Um, what has it had? You know, lightning round from Arizona. I don't really know what the substance is coming from the sky, so <laughs> I, I think it's associated with lightning. Um, We might see a change in voting behavior. I think we've gone from a state in which Republicans actually dominated mail voting. They did very, very well, and Democrats did better in in in-person voting. I think we're going to see a flip for the foreseeable future in Arizona. Um, I've also already delivered on a non-campaign promise, but campaign promise that other people make is we have this giant black wall and fence around our tabulation center now. So I have built the wall. Already in one and a half years of
2: my term, <laughs> Sorry. is that going to be your uh, your campaign motto in twenty four? <laughs> you know,
1: for some that would probably do better than saying you know other things.
2: <laughs> so, Rick, as you know, as um, you know, voters themselves, you know, they, they voice their concerns. How does that affect state legislatures, and what what are the outcomes there? Well, you
4: know, I mean, I think the first thing to think about is that. Um, what saved American democracy in 2020 was that Republicans and Democrats um, who had crucial positions in elections were heroes. You were here, you were fired by the president for saying that the election was not stolen. You're, it's true. It, I mean. And yeah. so, uh, it was Brad Raffensperger who didn't find 11,780 yeah. votes, a Republican Secretary of State in Georgia. It was, Uh, uh, Stefan Bibas, a Third Circuit judge, who said you can't come to us and say that the Pennsylvania election was stolen without presenting actual evidence. Unfortunately, many of those heroes will no longer be in a position of power, and we're seeing people who are election deniers running for office. And you mentioned state legislatures. Here's the problem. The base of the Republican Party believes the last election was stolen, and they want to elect people who um, will parrot that line and who are going to be running elections next time. Let's imagine those people are, some of them are in positions of power and they run the elections fairly. Are people on the left side of the spectrum going to believe it was fair even if it was fair? So it's kind of a double crisis of confidence. And so state legislatures are passing laws that are reacting to Trump from above and the Republican base from below saying there are problems with elections. There really aren't problems with elections in most places. And in some places, these laws are making it harder for people to vote. And the Democrats have an incentive to exaggerate how much harder it is to vote. And it becomes a vicious cycle. I've long called it the voting wars. I feel like things are getting worse rather than better in terms of the ability to find bipartisan solutions to actually run elections in in an effective and efficient way.
1: Can I I pick up on that? Sure. Because I've run five elections so far, jurisdictional elections. And in those elections, I have seen no evidence of significant voter uh, fraud. And I have seen no evidence of significant voter suppression. And yet, 97% of the conversation in election administration at the state legislature is regarding one of those two topics. And both are, I don't think, substantiated by
2: the facts. So I think the key to an effective panel like this is you spend the first half scaring the hell out of people and the second half talking about solutions. And I think sometimes we, we forget to talk about solutions. And I think that's a key part for this conversation. What are the tools in the toolkit for building confidence, restoring confidence in elections, assuming there, there was some at, at one point, but looking forward, what has been effective over the last several years, if anything, and what do we think we have to put in place with the midterms coming up, with all the various statewides that are coming up in November, with 24, you know, 24 in the primary season is gonna be here before you know it. And don't forget that election conspiracy theories do not just circulate around the general and the November race. If you remember, uh, uh, it was uh, the Iowa Democratic caucuses, they used an app that crashed throughout the process and there were claims that it was some sort of manipulation. Meanwhile, all the votes were uh, cast in, in public and it was not a secret ballot. So everything's uh, kind of on the playing field. So Ken, you're now uh, with CISA, which uh, we worked on from 16 to 20, and now you've continued that tradition working with state and local officials. What from your view are some of the key um, a- accomplishments or objectives that you have to achieve for 22 and 24 and what is needed most at the state level from the federal government and I mean both uh, the executive branch and if you can the legislative branch.
3: <laughs> That's big I can take
2: the legislative branch if you need to okay. go ahead.
3: Um, well you know I, I think going back to that 8,800 jurisdictions the biggest challenge that I think we face as a nation is Um, If you're Maricopa County, you're LA County, you're King County in Washington, you're well-resourced. You have hundreds of employees, you have an entire... You know, you probably have a CSO, you, you have an IT department, you have the resources. You get into those medium and small sized jurisdictions, they're lucky if they have an IT person in their county, let alone someone in their elections division. And it's just, it's amplified by the, the challenges of funding for elections. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I would say is funding for elections, um, especially at the, at the national level, um, because it's an un- uneven playing field. And I can tell you, as, as having been a county auditor, um, a counterpart to Stephen and, and Secretary of State, if, I'm, if I have to convince my legislative body to put an election deputy in my office or a sheriff's deputy, I can tell you who wins. And it's usually not the election deputy. And so if you are in a jurisdiction that's well-funded, you are going to be able to, to you know, battle the, the foreign and domestic uh, adversaries that we have in the cyber world, the misinformation, the comms plan. If you are in that... You know, small to medium size. It's bigger challenge. So I think that the good news story here is um, the work that that Chris did at CISA that, that predates me and Matt Masterson and their team um, really did give a good foundation. So it is leveling that playing field. It is providing services like vulnerability scanning of their uh, election equipment to see what they need to shore up and how they can do it. It's providing all sorts of resource guides and helping them do things like continuity of operation planning and all of that work actually made the most secure election in the country's history in 2020 even though i know that's become very polarizing it's a fact and i've i've done this work for 30 years i can say that because i've been in the trenches and i know and so um you know we were prepared for the pandemic because we did all of that preparation for cybersecurity and and had all of those continuity of operation plans in place Um, other things that we're doing is really just getting out around the country and talking to local election officials to see where the need is so you know we're trying to bring the resources of the federal government yeah I get to say I'm I'm with the federal government and I'm here to help I love that by the way Um, but you know you get to go into these jurisdictions and really find out what the needs are and help them and so I think that that's one that's one of the things but Congress needs to step up, and we need to have another HAVA-like funding of, yeah. of elections, and it needs to be sustained.
2: So the funding piece is pretty interesting because uh, states and local jurisdictions have to fund, and there is a mechanism for the federal government to fund or help fund elections, but it's inconsistent, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's right. authorized in the Help America Vote Act of 2003, and there have been tranches of money, but the biggest challenge I've seen is state legislatures when they appropriate, they have very very tight budgets. And when they see alternate sources of grant funding come in from the Fed, uh, from the federal government, they'll say, "Well, you're taken care of. We need to go do this thing instead." So that's that. so. So Stephen, shifting to you, you know, from a DC perspective, having lived in DC for 20 plus years now, um, we tr- we we try to or we tend to treat micro issues with kind of macro solutions. But from a bottom up county perspective, you know, what help? if any, do you want slash need from the top? And what are some of the other mechanisms that you've seen and that you really think we need to double down on going forward? I,
1: I think more helpful from Congress would be a cultural shift, saying to your leaders and to your fellow members, this is unacceptable you know, a debate on a certain level is fine, but you have gone outside the parameters and you are now eroding the very edifice by which we are all imbued with our power. You know, instead they spent a lot of time talking about sort of the, I don't know, the smorgasbord of things that sort of the progressive policy agenda wants, some of which were well-intentioned and some of which are fine, but it's a little bit like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, I'm sitting there with people with a literal guillotine outside of my office and people who don't fundamentally believe in the election system, and they're talking about whether you should have early voting
2: 10 days or 15 days. And it's like, ah, that's, you know, of limited value to me. All right, so this, this is something maybe I'll pivot to you, Rick, on what are, what are some of the accountability measures that we have other than the ballot box? So if we have members of Congress that continue to parrot some of the election lies, the big lie of 2020, are there accountability measures, or is it really just vote him out of office? Well, one thing I would like to see, and
4: I had a piece in last Sunday's New York Times, is uh, prosecution of Donald Trump for uh, yep. an insurrection. We need what lawyers call specific deterrence. Yeah. That means we need to deter this specific actor from doing this again, because there's every reason to believe that he would. And we need general deterrence. So I, I think that, that's dealing with the past. But what we really need to deal with the future is we need to know that if people try to steal the election next time around, it's not gonna look exactly the same way as it did before. We need to game out all the different ways this can happen. There's actually a very narrow legislative window right now. There's conversations going on among Democratic and Republican senators to pass an anti-election subversion bill. It would do things like fix the electoral count act to say that the vice president doesn't have unilateral power to throw out votes. But it, I hope it will also do other things, like I would like to see a requirement that every federal election, and Congress has the power to override states. It's an article in section four of the Constitution. Congress can say, you must use paper ballots. And I think that should absolutely happen. Louisiana should not be able to, and and county, count some counties in Texas, they should not be able to do, do anything that doesn't produce a piece of paper that can be counted by a judge. I mean, we need things that can help people
2: know what the truth is. And
4: yeah. transparency, some of that can come from Congress. Some of it can come from the Department of Justice.
2: So so this is an important point, right? And Kim touched on this a little bit earlier. But prior to 2000, well, this is really in the wake of 2000 and the hanging chad with some of those, the equipment that was decades and decades old, there was this infusion of money that then led to technological innovation in the way elections work. And one of those brilliant innovations was what's known as a direct recording equipment machine where you touch the screen and the vote is registered down on removable media. The removable media is then transferred to a tabulator, everything's counted up. The challenge is you don't have a voter voter verifiable paper audit trail where you can go back and do what Georgia did three times, meaning count the vote. So that's Rick's point about that paper ballot. And so prior to 2016, well, according to David Becker and the Center for Election Innovation Research, I think it was uh, 79% of ballots cast in 2016 election had a paper audit trail. Mm -hmm. And then by the time of the 2020, we got it up to about 95, 93, 95, in part due to COVID, right? The state of New Jersey flipped to entire mail-in absentee approach.
1: And in part due to Chris Krebs, quite frankly. Um, No, I'm being serious. Like this was something that you pushed. And in Arizona, one of the safeguards that we have, because we've been accused of deleting files Hacking the internet. It's like, we have a paper ballot for every single vote cast so you can always go back and audit it, which is why when you were talking about security measures, I believe you made this like a big agenda item. I was
2: a big fan of keep it simple, stupid, right? So when I hear about mobile voting and blockchain coming into the voting process, I'm like, not in in my lifetime, right? We need more paper everywhere so you can go back. And I, I gotta say, Georgia and Pennsylvania were both on direct recording equipment machines in the 2016 election. They both flipped over to ballot marking devices, which there have been some vulnerabilities discovered and announced recently. But nonetheless, there were paper ballots that Brad Raffensperger in Georgia could go back and count. And it was absolutely critical in our confidence in the outcome of of that election. So what I wanna do is just one more, maybe across the panel. Um, But when, actually Rick, just to close out on this one. So the Supreme Court takes up uh, Decides to take up next term uh, an issue in North Carolina about the state legislature and uh, touching on the the independent state legislature doctrine. Can you unpack just you know really briefly for us what's going on and what the potential risks are to the you know voters determining American elections?
4: Sure. And you know my field, election law, is pretty arcane, but this is arcane even for people in my field. <laughs> so just bear with me for a minute. So. I mentioned a minute ago, the Constitution has, has a provision. It's an Article 1, Section 4. And it says that um, each uh, state legislature gets to set the rules for conducting congressional elections subject to congressional override. And there's a question. What does it mean when it says the state legislature gets to set those rules? The Supreme Court has long said that when it, the, the word legislature is used there, it means the legislative process. So there's an old case called Smiley versus Holm that says when the state decides how to redistrict congressional districts, it, uh, that um, provision that sets the district lines, that's subject to a governor's veto or signing. So the governor's part of it. Even though it just says legislature, the governor's also involved. There was also a case out of Arizona back in 2015 where the voters of Arizona passed an initiative that said, we're not going to let the legislature draw the lines for uh, districts, including Congress we're going to appoint an independent commission. And this has become popular in California, in Michigan, and other places. Supreme Court said that didn't take away the power of the state legislature. But now this issue has come back. And just this morning, the Supreme Court said it's going to hear a case next term from North Carolina. So North Carolina has a Republican legislature They' called the General Assembly. They drew a partisan gerrymander of the congressional districts. The state Supreme Court, which is, has the majority of Democrats, said, you can't do that. That violates the state constitution, which has the provision of protecting the right to vote. Then the state legislature went to the United States Supreme Court and said, the state uh, Supreme Court took away our power to draw these lines. And what the Supreme Court's going to decide, it's sometimes referred to as the independent state legislature theory, is whether the legislature can act on its own, even to violate the state constitution as the state Supreme Court would say, or whether it's subject to the normal rules of the state. So why does this matter? It came up in um, 2020. Uh, Donald Trump and his allies were trying to use these arguments to say, for example, that the state legislature could come in after the election. There was pressure in Arizona and other places to just appoint a slate of electors, because there's a parallel provision that applies to presidential elections. Or you can imagine somebody says, a state state election administrator, they didn't do the job right. They didn't do what the state legislature wants them to do. State judge, federal judge, throw out the votes. And so it could provide a path to subvert election outcomes and shift power from all the different actors that are involved in running elections in each state to the state legislature, making them supreme. And in states like Pennsylvania and North Carolina, where you've got divided government, some branches controlled by Democrats, some by Republicans, it can lead to a lot of conflict and that could further undermine voter confidence because we know when the rules keep changing and people keep hearing all of this talk about fraud and suppression and changing the voting dates and the rules,
2: confidence goes down. So, wanna leave some time for questions. So we've got a couple mic runners in the room. Anybody, anybody have questions? Because I can play off this or, okay. Yep, in the, in the room, uh, up front here, please.
0: Thank you. Hi. Uh, My name's Ava Mateo, and I actually run a youth voting organization that's uh, focused on helping young people be informed, active citizens. Um, And so one of our biggest challenges is helping young people be informed about local elections. And so I was wondering, like, is this on your radar? What role can election officials help, like, play in helping young people be more informed, particularly about the processes, but also who is running? And just what, in a space where there really isn't, it's difficult to find information about, about these really hyper-localized um, situations, what role can people like yourselves I mean, play? Yeah,
2: yeah Stephen. I mean, you are Maricopa County, you're a county-level recorder. Yeah. So what was your game plan for uh, you know youth voters?
1: Well, we go into any communities, we go into high schools, we go into colleges, we offer them to come here. But what I would say to you, and anyone who wants information is, Election administration, as Kim can attest, is a field of underpaid people who are weirdly obsessed with this process. And so they will talk to you about it. They will talk to you about it until the cows come home. And so if you show even a modicum of interest, they're gonna say bring the whole school in. And in fact, if you're in Arizona, bring the bring your class in. Um, so, so really the, the information is out there and I would just say go to the source uh, and, and you can learn how elections work and it's really not The only reason it was a black box before is because nobody cared and we weren't good at communicating it. Now we're trying to get better at communicating it, but we would love if you took the first step sometimes and came in.
3: And then I'd also throw out, and this is a carryover, I think, from 2020. Across the country, we need poll workers, we need election workers, we need people to step up. And get into their local election offices and work and that is a great way to engage young people get them in uh you know serving on election day or the lead-in it's great they'll be hooked
4: if i could just add one more point about the role of social media i think Mm -hmm. because so many people get their information on social media today you have to be very proactive not only as a as an election administrator not only to be verified or have some kind of official recognition but to be able to knock down rumors as they come, and so this is one of the, the, the strategic communications pieces you mentioned is so crucial because we do know that when uh, you know when you hear about ballots in a ditch and you try and track the story down, by the time uh, if election officials act slowly,
2: that story can gain a lot of momentum. This is a real challenge, though, right? I mean, because there are different times and types of narratives and themes that make themselves available to. Uh, whether it's debunking or correction. And there are others that are simply either fantastical or they could in fact be true, but in, in, you know, in, in the net net, they're not particularly significant. And that was one of the challenges we struggled with in 2020 with rumor control. So around the 2020 election, we set up a website that as certain themes came through, Arizona and Gate, there were claims that, Sharpie, that Sharpies were being handed out, they were, uh, but they were bleeding through the paper and causing, uh, on the flip side of the ballot, the vote, another, a different vote to be registered, which is actually not how it works. There were no countable areas on the other side of the ballot. So for, for, that was one that made itself available. To say, no, in Arizona, here's the process. Here's how the ballots are configured. Here's why Sharpies don't actually matter. But other things like ballots in the ditch. And frankly, there could be ballots in a ditch. A, a, you know, a, a, a mail truck could run off the road. And so this is where from a voter perspective, what are the specific things a voter can do to be more resilient? You know, is it, is it check your registration? Have a voter plan. I mean, what are, Kim, what are some of the, the tips for voters to be more resilient?
3: Yeah, all of those things. Certainly, uh, you know, going to your local election office, finding out, uh, making sure you're registered, making sure it's up to date, correct address, is probably the most common error we have in elections. Um, but But, I think it's also educating in uh, an awareness level of where the information you're getting is coming from. And I think that the role that election officials are starting to pivot to now is one trying to remind people that they're the trusted sources. People are much more going to believe Stephen than me when I talk about how elections are run in Arizona, um, and they should be. And so um, you know connecting with that local official as a source of information, but also being really diligent. When your friend sends you, you know, something—a post on Twitter, Facebook, whatever—what, like, you know, doing? Don't just just like it or just, uh, you know, retweet it or whatever. Drill down because so much of the information out there is um, is challenging. And I, I have to give a shout out, um, although my current boss, Jen Easterly, will probably, you know, give me a hard time about this. But one of the things that um, that Chris did um, when he was at CISA is they did the War on Pineapple. You know should should pineapple be on pizza and we all know of course it should um nope but anyway yeah um but they did this great infographic of explaining this and disinformation and how it how you're manipulated by your emotions essentially and so you know it's that kind of stuff and the more we can make people literate the more resilient they're going to be
2: steven any any kind of what are your tips from the arizona perspective for the individual voter
1: You you can follow your ballot through all stages of the process. You really can. I mean, uh, technology is starting to catch up with the election world. So right now in, in Maricopa County, you can go online. You can see your ballot. You can see when your ballot is fully printed. You can see when your ballot leaves the post office. You can see when your ballot has been delivered to your to your mailbox. You can even get the USPS informed delivery thing then when you send it back you can tell all stages of the process and you can tell when it's been tabulated and you can go online and you can check your entire voting history whether or not you voted and so we are trying to make it um more accessible uh, i just we're, we're trying to get more people onto those systems uh, and, and then i would say the the other thing that has changed fundamentally from 2020 is the media Um, there's been a lot of media bashing, uh, you know, and saying the media should step up here and there. And look, I'm a Republican. I'm happy to engage in some good old fashioned media bashing, but the media has actually gotten a lot better because they learned about elections in 2020 and in 2021. And they are much better to equip, equipped now to say that rumor that's starting to grow that, that can't happen because I already know about the system that's in place. And so that the AP can nip it in the bud immediately and I think they're gonna be, yes, I'll say this, a valuable ally moving
0: forward.
4: One problem though is voters have a harder time knowing what is reliable media. So one of the suggestions I make uh, in Sheep's speech is that journalists should get together as uh, create journalistic societies that give a kind of seal of approval, a good housekeeping seal of approval. If you follow these um, journalistic norms like double check with two sources before you report something give the person you're reporting about a chance to respond you'll get a seal of approval and then the social media companies can use that so you see Arizona Republic okay this is a reliable source whereas you know somebody creates the you know uh, the Arizona Times and it doesn't exist but it has a fancy website people would know well this isn't a reliable source so we we can't expect voters who are flipping through social media st- to have all the information at their fingertips as to what's reliable and what's not. And so the more we can help voters, give them a clue as to what's reliable information, the better off we're gonna be Yeah. Any other questions from
2: the audience? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's, um, oh, I'm gonna regret this later. That's my wife with her hand up. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I, we'll go here and then here, so. All right, you, why don't you go? In? Man, that's the-
4: <laughs> Hi, I'm Paul Leff. I'm a voter. I'm um, <laughs> just so 60%. You gave the statistic: 60% of the Republican Party thought the last election uh, wasn't conducted mm-hmm. properly. Without knowing the facts, I would guess that that 60% is like Fox News's prime audience. Is there a strategy to get? people like you on Fox News somehow I mean Fox News likes brawls so some type of brawl between the 40 percent of the Republican Party that might believe something that the last election was actually conducted properly you have to get to that audience to actually make a difference Uh, so a couple of things first um, that 59 percent statistic was People who said that believing that claim the election was stolen was an important part of what it means to be a Republican, like believing in low taxes or less regulation. It's even higher when you ask the question, "Do you believe the election was stolen?" Among it's
2: like Republicans, 73%.
4: Yeah, yeah, so so that that figure is higher. In in at uh, the hearings, January 6 hearings, those are much more effective than I could be about convincing whether whether the election was stolen. There's been great reporting by CNN over the last few days about how the Uh, People who are watching Fox News goes in half when the hearings start. Mm -hmm. Half the Fox News viewers turn it off. And so what we have is not just a supply problem, we have a demand problem. People want the false claims, and that's a much harder social problem to solve, not one we're gonna solve in 57 seconds. Uh, I've been on Brett Bear, debated Liz Harrington, Trump's spokesperson.
1: I don't know how much came of it, but I would say uh, David Brooks' talk last night, he said trust is more through, formed through these bonds, these social bonds. So I think more important than going on Fox News and telling me, like, here's the 15 reasons why I'm right. I actually have more than 15, is coming and, and meeting me as a person, meeting some of the elections community as a person, getting to know us, hopefully forming a bond, and then hopefully respecting our opinion as we walk you
2: through the elections process. All right, get us in under the the line here. You got 20 seconds.
3: So. Okay, um, this is actually not for you at all, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> no, but Kim, you had brought up, like, be a poll worker, and, like, since the 2020 election, we see, like, people don't want to be poll workers because they get death threats. We saw the testimony of Ruby Freeman and Shea Mott. Like, their lives are ruined. Like, how, what's the, and then the, maybe this is for Stephen. Like, how are you going to recruit these poll workers? I mean, and that's really how elections work. I mean, <laughs> if we don't have poll workers, what, what what's the plan? Right, well, it's, that's the challenge. And that, and right now it, it's exacerbated and we don't have time to talk about it, but the threats that are coming at election officials are real, they're happening across the country. And I can tell you that my colleagues are leaving in droves, uh, the folks with the institutional knowledge of, of how the process works. But I'm optimistic. Um, I like Madeleine Albright's uh, what did she say? Uh, she was like a cautious optimist, but I worried
4: optimist. Worried, yeah, of- worried, worried optimist. optimist.
3: That that that's what it would be. Um, I I think we just keep forging ahead because um, it's too important.
2: So I, go ahead,
1: Stephen. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to say we're going to recruit them all from the right.
2: Optimistic. Bright-eyed,
4: young, new generation. Yes, Yes.
2: and they have to know they're protected. They have to know they're a key part of this.
4: And And Congress can help do that too. In in this election bill, if it does come through,
2: in law enforcement, you know, speaking of general and specific deterrence, there's both available here. Those that do it have to be held accountable. I've said it before: an insurrection without consequences is just a trial run. Same things going here. We're developing the wrong patterns. There's negative feedback loops. So we have to hold those accountable that are doing this. You go get them and you put them in jail. So with that, all right. I want to everybody thank our panelists. for are wonderful here. Kim Wyman.
0: Security Advisor for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, part of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Previously, she was Secretary of State for Washington from 2013 to 2021, the second woman ever to serve in this position. Stephen Richer is the recorder for Maricopa County, Arizona. In this elected position, he is responsible for recording public documents, voter registration, and election administration for the fourth largest county and the second largest voting jurisdiction in the United States. Rick Hasson is a professor at UCLA School of Law. He's an expert in election law and campaign finance regulation and co-wrote case books in election law and remedies. He also wrote five other books, most recently, Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. Chris Krebs is a founding partner of the Krebs Stamos Group and the Senior Newmark Fellow in Cybersecurity Policy at Aspen Digital. He previously served as the first director of the Federal Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you're listening. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.